0: At Minooka Bible Church, we're big fans of the Bible, and we're also big fans of cartoons. And sometimes it takes a cartoon to help us understand the Bible. When you get a chance to see the whole book of Esther at a glance in just under eight minutes, sometimes it helps you understand what it is saying as far as it's whole story arc and purpose. And that's one part of our overall goal here, which is to go, we've, we started back in September. We started re- going through God's word from Genesis, and we're going to be ending in Revelation in uh, April. And the whole goal was to try to help us understand what God is saying and how each of these parts that maybe we heard about here or there in the Bible, how they all fit together into God's greater story. And um, even just as I was uh, talking with some of you before the service, I'm getting to know some of you that I'm just getting to know and don't know names with faces and stuff. So if you're just joining Minooka Bible Church, um, keep coming. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to have some porch parties out here after each service in the spring as soon as like the eight feet of snow melts. Um, And so I'm looking forward to getting to know each of you. If you're looking to uh, go deeper, I want to encourage you to make sure you check out real life groups and keep on trying to get closer with other people here as we 're trying to follow jesus together and so the, the whole point of Esther is something that a lot of, at least a lot of messages have been focused in on celebrating Queen Esther and the fact that that God, in the midst of this Exile that God did something amazing here. We talked about last week how God's people were able to come back from Babylon and resettle, start to rebuild their homes, start to rebuild the temple walls, and that was all, and, and, and the temple itself, and that's all great. But you have to flash back to the fact that there's still exiles in Persia. Okay, they're not home yet. In fact, this whole Queen Esther thing takes place while they're still in captivity. Some folks are still in captivity, some people didn't get a chance to come home where we meet Queen Esther. That event, the fact that, that Queen Esther did what she did and saved the Jews and had that celebration called Purim or Purim is something that is still celebrated to this day. A couple of uh, times back when the church went on an Israel trip, uh, took a tour to Israel, um, it was I thought it was Jason Domingo and I, but it was actually Pastor Carlos and I. We're walking through our hotel lobby and we're seeing people like in Halloween costumes. Purim is a ce- that celebration that the oppressed didn't stay oppressed. That, that, they were, that they were saved. And it's so like kids all throughout, they get the day off school. They walk around in Halloween costumes, like any Spider-Man, anything else. They're dressed in Halloween costumes. Adults dress like they're going to an adult Halloween party in every which way that you can imagine. And we're walking through our, our, our hotel lobby and there's banquet hall is, is dedicated to this Purim's like party, like massive party. And there were so many people that we thought, well, Maybe there's some free food that we can get. And so we just, Carlos and I, we walked on in there and just kind of snuck in we're like, and it was bananas, it was Mardi Gras. Um, and then we got kicked out. But it was, it was one of those things where you see that this is still a huge deal to the people. Now, the, the thing that, that, again, as we can focus on all those amazing moments in the Esther story that are important, one thing that we miss out on is this issue of pride. In my study this week, I was going through and this one particular pastor pointed out the fact that all throughout the Bible, Pride is something that, that, that is called out as a negative, like like big-time negative, like like disastrously negative. And, and if you're looking for a case study on pride, the book of Esther is it, with the characters of Haman and then Mordecai and Esther. Like, this is amazing pride, just case study on that. But pride, like, in our culture today, is something that can be positive, right? What are some things that are positive as far as, as, far as pride? Like, if, if you have pride and people aren't going to look down on you for being proud. What are some of those things? What, what, what can you be proud of? Ch- children. Accom- someone say accomplishments? Yeah. What else? What? Your job. Your country. Okay. Some of you are the people that are like watching the Olympics. You're doing that because you're like, it's my country. Right? All right. So, okay. All those things. And those are positive. Like, and so like, if you said, I'm proud to be an American, no one's going to say, that's just, I can't. Or I'm proud of my kids. Oh, you sinner. No no one's going to say that, right? Because those things are positive. But scripture seems to point out the flip side of that. So today's overlong title for our sermon is this, our common story of pride, its poisoning, and the purpose found in eliminating it. If you go to the Urban Dictionary to get a definition for pride, it actually is going to give you a pretty good definition, and that is this. Oh, hold on one sec. It goes like, uh, there, thank you. Thank you. Yes. And there. A feeling of dignity, self-respect, satisfaction in your achievements, possessions, or people you care about. Okay, that's, that's the positive aspect of pride that all of us say there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we see scripture affirming the dignity and value a person has. So that's good. But I love the fact that the Urban Dictionary calls out the negative side of pride at the end of the definition. They say this, it's a good thing to have, but don't overdose on it. And that's the truth, because pride is something that, is, if it's got some good origin stories, it could end really, really poorly. And, and we see that. All, that's the pride that Scripture calls out. You want to do a case study on pride? Just do a search for pride in the book of Proverbs, and it's just, a, and just talking all the way through. Solomon talks about how pride for him, that he watched pride destroy relationships, destroy work environments, destroy raising kids. Pride just time and time again messes you up. And so today we're going to talk about from the book of Esther, where does pride come from? What does it do? And how do we eliminate it? And so first off, starting again, going right to the account in Esther, let's go ahead and look at where does it come from? So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Esther chapter 3. If you've got your copy of the story, you can go ahead and turn to page 279, last paragraph on the page. This is where we're we're getting Haman, kind of the introduction to who, who Haman is, who again is the negative side of pride in this account. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and elevated him and gave him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. I don't know if you've ever chewed out your boss, but there's certain things that you know. If you say this, you're going to get fired, right? Right? Like, if you say this to your boss, there's no way you're going to keep your job. In this time frame, you, if you did not bow down to a high official that was commanded by the king to do so, it's not just you losing your job that you'd have to be worried about. It's you losing your life. And Mordecai does that. He chooses not to do that. Next verse. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. Wait for it. For he had told them he was a Jew. Okay, Mordecai tells Queen Esther in this account, look, keep your Jewishness on the DL. You do not want that kind of baggage going into this situation. Just be quiet about it. But Mordecai doesn't take his own advice. Mordecai doesn't care if people know that he's a Jew. In fact, he fronts it. He puts it out there right up front so people can see it. And so it's out there, and that makes him absolutely vulnerable for them to say, okay, dude, not only are you disobeying the king's decree, not only are you disobeying, or dishonoring Haman when he walks by by not bowing to him, but on top of that, you're a Jew. We've got like zero tolerance for that from you people. it continues on, next verse. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was, what? Enraged. Okay, he wasn't disappointed. He wasn't put out. He didn't have a talk. Okay, Mordecai, come here, man. We have to have a face-to-face here. This is a one-on-one. You can't do that. I know that you're a Jew, but you've lived in this land long enough to know you cannot pull that type of thing. He doesn't do that. He becomes unglued destroyed at the disrespect that has shown him to the point that he goes bananas from it. But where does his pride come from? Like if you want to source it all the way back in Scripture, we can actually see pride actually has its origin story in Satan himself because what he wanted was he wanted things to be more fixated on him than the Heavenly Father. And that's where everything went wrong in the first place. Where does pride come from in our own life? Well, this is like the negative side of pride that scripture talks about. The biblical perspective on pride is this. Scripture differentiates confidence and appreciation from obsession. So from those like positive aspects of pride, I'm I'm proud of my kids, I'm proud of my country job, whatever. Going from just that to obsession in those things. Pride is what happens when we step from self-awareness to self-fixation. And this actually shows up in two different ways. The first is the obvious is this, is the type of person who's super conceited, super into themselves and they're like I'm all that. I am all that. You know people like this, right? People that are so fixated on themselves. They fi- you you just want to say just get over you tell these people, don't you? Get over yourself. Have you ever said that to someone? Just get over yourself. What you're saying is you are so fixated on yourself, you can't tell if there's other people in the room. You're so fixated on, your, on, your, on how awesome you are, how awesome your job is, how awesome your relationship is, or how awesome your stuff is, that you, don't miss, you miss out on the fact that there's people who are hurting around you. Get over yourself. Okay, so the first pride, the aspect of pride is that. I'm all that. But there's another side of pride that's more dangerous because we don't pick up on it. It's far more disastrous because it is actually not seen as pride, and it's this. I'm nothing at all. The first aspect of pride is fixation on how awesome I am. I'm so great. I'm better than everyone else because I've got this. I'm with her. I'm doing this. I'm better than everyone else. I'm more moral, whatever. I'm, I'm all that. The flip side of the coin is I am nothing. If I only had that relationship, if I only had that house If I only had that kind of a paycheck. You know what? People are always giving that person approval. They're always giving them the promotion. And I'm getting passed up time and time again. And I'm busting my rear to try to make things work. And I'm still getting zero respect. I'm still getting zero appreciation. Like, I don't know what it is. But I I, I just, and you know what? When I I go through my life and and it just tears me apart that fixation on the fact that I am deficient. I've got nothing. I'm nothing at all. These are the two aspects of pride that we see surface. And we see in Haman a picture of this. Why does he come unglued? He's seeing Mordecai make him look like he's nothing. How dare you? How dare you make me look like I'm nothing? And then we see what happens as a result when we see what pride does. If you take a look, let's just reread verse 5, or it's that, that last sentence that we ended on on page 280, second paragraph. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was what? Enraged. Okay, now that, that's a Hebrew word right there called hama. And chama is not just like, I'm angry, I'm so upset. No, it's like enraged. It's also the word for heat. It's like heated rage. And there's one other part in the Bible where it's describing something that's bottled, that's fermented, and the fermentation of the, of the wine causes the, the, the actual skin that, that it's held in to like start to do this. Have you ever felt like that? Where you're so angry, and it's just like, and it's just like you're ready to explode. Something happens at work, and you just, I'm not gonna say anything here because I wanna keep my job. And you button your lips, and you drive home, You're totally frustrated the whole way home. You're cussing under your breath. Then you get into the driveway. You walk into the house, and then somebody does one thing. Like, "How was your day?" When it's like explosion, right? You know what that's like. That that's chama. That is you are unglued. You are explosive. Why? Because this something just explodes you. So Haman, Haman is absolutely coming chama, enraged. And that that source. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? You know, I, I before I got married, I used to think I was a really nice guy. Actually, no. Before I got married, I was a really nice guy, and before Julie and I got married, we were a perfect couple. Like it was epic. I think I've told you this before. We were so perfect. People were like, "You're so perfect," and we're like, "We know." Like I tell myself that all the time. We're so perfect. Like I, I seriously thought, man, six months into marriage, we're going to be writing the marriage books to show people who are like in their 30s and 40s how to do it right because we're so experienced at being perfect in this relationship. That was amazing, and it was exactly like that until three weeks before Julie and I got married on a drive from Chicago down to Champaign-Urbana. On a drive from Chicago down to Champaign Urbana, all of a sudden, Julie called me out on something that she legitimately should have called me out on. And all of a sudden, this amazingly nice, wonderfully sweet Errol McFadden who, who would not want to hang out with that guy, right? Expl- chama. I hammered all over her in that moment. I exploded like, and Julie's, she's not, she, you may think she's sweet, but she hama right back. And we had the chama fest all the way down champagne and banner, and I became unglued, absolutely unglued. Why? What was the source of that? My pride. Why though? Eight years old. Eight-year-old Errol McFadden. I was doing something stupid, or my dad asked me to do something, and I was lazy about it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember what my dad said. Errol, why are you being so incompetent? I didn't even know what incompetent meant. You might not know what incompetent means, but my dad used lots of big words I didn't understand the meaning of, but he said, why are you being so incompetent? But I didn't hear that. I heard, Errol, why are you so incompetent? And what I learned from the context was, it's not that hard just to do it right, right? and you, you're messing it up. You're not enough. You're failing. I was interpreting all this from my dad's simple statement. Now, I love my dad, and my dad loves me. My dad was trying to help me just be a little bit more diligent, but when he said that, all of a sudden, it got tattooed in my heart, and then I heard it again at nine, heard it again at 10. When I heard it, I heard it a ton in my junior high years. Errol, why are you being so, why are you so incompetent? You're being incompetent. Why? To the point that I set a part in my heart that, look, I'm either going to be a failure or I'm going to try to prove to everyone, especially my dad, I'm not a failure. And I began running away from the ghost of that sentence that continued to resurface in my mind even when my dad wasn't there Errol, you're so incompetent. Every failure, Errol, you're so incompetent. And I got to a place of coming towards the end of high school where I started feeling more secure in my competencies in a few areas. I go to college, and I'm 2,000 miles away from my dad, so I'm not hearing it anymore. And so I'm feeling really, really good about myself. I start dating Julie, and I'm blown away that she even likes me. And so everything is great until this drive from Chicago down to Champaign-Urbana three weeks before we got married. We were juniors at the time. And I remember when she said, whatever she said in calling me out, she was revealing the fact that I was failing something. And she pulled back the layers, and all of a sudden I heard Dennis McFadden saying the exact same thing, saying, see, I told you. And I exploded. Why? Because she had spoken into the wound of my life and the reality that I was running away from it, and yet the, the one person that I cared more the one person's opinion that I cared more about than anyone else all of a sudden had the same opinion that my dad had and I exploded see this is why scripture talks about this as being so radically messed up that pride precedes destruction that, that, that not only does pride precede destruction that, that it's something that God is against G, uh, James, Jesus' his brother said this is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble C.S. Lewis the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia he, he said this he said, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. You want to wonder, if you ask the question, why am I so discouraged and so disappointed? A lot of times it's because of our pride, self-fixation on me being all that or me being nothing because of what I lack. Why is this happening to me? Why, this should not happen. I deserve better. Take a look at what happens with, with Haman. Let's read that sentence again. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Chama. Yet, and listen, look what happens with that seed of pride. That seed of, like, I can't believe he disrespected me. Yet, having learned who, who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of, of Xerxes. Okay, pause. Not only because of what you did to me, am I going to take you down? I'm going to take you out. But his pride was so like absolutely, I can't believe it, so disproportionate to the situation that he not only wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all of his people have a genocidal moment here. Listen to how he pulls that off. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be in- issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Pause. So in other words, not only does he want to do this murderous rampage, but he's like, look, I'll even pay for it. I'll, I'll grease the skids in this. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to push this, this figure across the table. If you're cool with it, we'll make it happen. Xerxes says this. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please we see in Haman the destructive reality of what pride does. It disproportionately deals with a situation because it poisons our perspective. We can't deal logically anymore. C.S. Lewis and, C- and Mere Christianity said this as well. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. What does pride do? It poisons your perspective. It, and, and the thing is that it's so invisible. It's scentless. It is the carbon monoxide of our life where it just seeps in. And what we end up doing is if we're over here, we're constantly looking down on people who like, man, I feel so much better than myself because I'm not as bad as them. Or I've got stuff and they don't. Or, or I'm, I'm a moral person and this person is so screwed up. Or Man, I just, I, I, I do everything I can, but I'm so messed up. I don't have anything. I don't have anything like them. And you know what? They don't even take it for granted. They don't even t- appreciate it. I am in such a garbagey situation and look at them. What am I doing? Even though I'm down, I'm looking down on them. Even when we're, I mean, to show you how bad the problem is, it's easy, it's easy for us even to look down on people who look down on people. Like what we're doing right now, we're looking down on people who look down on people. It just chases us, we can't get rid of it. In fact, as I've been talking, you may have even been thinking, yeah, you know, it's true, my husband does have a pride issue. forgetting about the fact that it's you. One of the best things about Re-Engage, uh, the ministry that we have to married people to help them to really recognize their, their marriage as something that God owns, is this, is, is to help them realize you need to stay in your circle. You want your marriage to be better? Draw a circle around yourself and deal with the person in the circle. Why? Because all of us want to project our issues on someone else. That is pride. It feels good to look down. Every aspect of human misery can be traced back to pride. You hate your job? Source that back to pride. Every, every, every marriage breakup, every infidelity, every relationship, that, a friendship that was destroyed, traced back to pride. Every, every, every job loss and firing can be traced back to pride. Every aspect of your world that has crumbled has, can be traced back to pride. I deserve this or I deserve better, or why is this happening? It's over-fixation on oneself, one way or the other. Every war in human history can be traced back to pride. If human beings actually got this right, what would happen with our jobs, our marriages, our relationships, and our countries would be radically, radically altered. Pride poisons each one of these things. So what do we do with that? How do we get rid of it? Because honestly, I mean, today you're going to get online, you're going to go to Facebook, and you're going to this. This is going to resurface. You can get all this stuff dealt with today. You're going to go right back home, and it's going to resurface. This happened to me in January. I was, um, I'm. A lot of you are on Facebook. I never ever like I've heard people say I just I don't even want to go to Facebook anymore because I watch like people's family pictures and I just get I get envious, I get jealous of what what people are doing. I have FOMO like you wouldn't believe. I never have that. I don't experience that. It's never happened to me until January. January, all of a sudden, are the Yankees here? No? Good. The Yankees went on a cruise, and they posted the pictures. I don't even like cruises, okay? I went on one cruise. It was okay. But, the, but all of a sudden, in January, it was a cold January day, and I was hungry. And then I'm looking at the Yankees pictures, and what are they doing? They're sitting in the heat, eating. And I'm just like, why, why, why are we not there? Like, what, is it we don't save enough money? Like, are we we not, do we not deserve a vacation? The Yanceys, oh, they're so great that they deserve this. Cruise, what's wrong with that? And all of a sudden, my brain starts going through these different, awful, prideful gymnastics. Destroy, it's poison. It is poison. So how do we deal with it? How do we eliminate it? And the beautiful thing is that we see that. We see that in this passage. Not only do we see Haman... Haman as the object of pride where we watch how it destroys. Because again, his pride was not only going to lead to other people's destruction, it eventually leads to death of himself and his family. I mean, pride just continued just to destroy every relationship around him. He thought it was self-serving, but it was, it was absolutely self-suicide on everyone else around him. So when we look at Mordecai and Esther, we see kind of the flip side of that. Uh, Mordecai is in a situation where he's now going to die. Esther's in a, in a place of privilege and, and a, a, a position where she, of power that she could do something about it, but she knows that it's going to be costly. And so Mordecai's back and forth with her, talking with her, and then this happens on page 282 or Esther chapter 4, verse 12 and following. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if, you, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish. Who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go. "'Gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. "'Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, "'and I and my attendants will fast as you do. "'When this is done, I will go to the king, "'even though it's against the law. "'And if I perish, I perish.'" We see Mordecai urging Esther to make a selfless move for the good of others in this moment, even though it could sacrifice everything from her. You want to eliminate pride in you, not in your spouse, you want to eliminate pride in you—not in your kids, not in your parents, not in your coworkers or your boss. You want to eliminate, eliminate pride in you. This is how you do it. The first thing you do is you look to Haman. You look to Haman, and you realize that the, way, the solution is to seek the king's favor. Here's the problem with Haman in this story: Haman was not seeking the wrong thing; he was seeking it from the wrong king. Haman was desperate for approval. And finally, I don't know what his backstory was. I don't know if his dad, when he was eight, told him he was incompetent, I don't know. But I know that Haman was absolutely enamored with the fact that he was finally elevated and given respect from someone higher than him. He was finally put in a position. Why did he freak out at Mordecai? Because finally, he had the respect he longed for his entire career, his entire life. And then it was robbed by this guy, this outsider foreigner. And that unglued him. Here's the thing in Haman. Haman was desperate for something that every single human being is hardwired into us to to, to long for. Every human being desires the favor of someone, the honor, the respect of someone higher than us. Think about it. When you're a kid, you desire that from your mom and dad. You want your parents to approve of you. That's why you draw goofy pictures and you give it to your mom. And When she puts it on the fridge, you're blown away because she did that for you. She honored your stuff. Your art is on the fridge, not Josh's because his art stinks, but yours. Yours is amazing. And so you're like, and then all of a sudden you go to school. And when you go to school, all of a sudden you're like, you you, want to have the honor and respect, the favor, the approval of people you go to school with, your friends. I just want to be accepted. I don't even have to be popular. I just want to be accepted because their opinion is so amazing. And then, then all of a sudden, you get to a place where, like, you just want the, the a favor and opinion of that one, that one person, that significant other, who will look at you and, in spite of all your issues, in spite of everything that's going on, in spite of all your insecurities, they look at you and they value you, and you're you're like completed by that. And then you go off and you get in a career, and you just want you want to have the approval of the upper boss, the upper management, who'll finally acknowledge you for being someone who's valuable. Haman was not dealing with anything foreign or sinful. It was natural. It is natural in human beings to want the honor of someone higher than you. Do you know why? Because God designed that for him. He created every human being with a hunger and a thirst for the approval of someone higher up. The problem is, we're just not looking high enough. The honor and the approval that we were designed to receive is from the King of Kings. Haman wasn't seeking the wrong thing. He was seeking it from the wrong king. As I was reading through this passage this week and recognized, just reading this whole story through the lens of pride, I mean, I grew up in Sunday school, like, hating Haman. He was the bad dude. You watch VeggieTales, bad dude. I didn't look at him the same way this week. I sympathized with him. Like, I felt bad for him because I got it. He just wanted the favor of someone higher than him. He just was looking to the wrong king. And if you are looking to your parents or your friends or a significant other or your job to give you the security only Christ can give you, you are going to end up disappointed, a disappointed, full-of-pride person who's either fixated on the fact you finally got it or fixated on the fact that you would never got it enough. What God has given you is this. The fact that Jesus did what he did, he was the one, unlike Mordecai and like Haman, he was the one who was pinned to a stake. He was, for you and for me. And when Jesus did that, this is what's amazing. When I look at that reality, all of a sudden I realize that God, Philippians 2 talks about this, that God became man that Jesus became man and that he not only took on the humility of becoming the human being, but he also died. And he he didn't just die, he died the death on a cross. And he did that for me. You know what that means? The person whose opinion matters most in the entire universe has that opinion of me that he would do that for me. No one else will do that for me. And he did. And that means that I can go into anything else in life Any issue with my marriage, any issue with my work, any issue with my friends betraying me, any issues with my own insecurities or or my ghost from my past when I was eight years old. And I could say, all these things can discourage me, they can depress me, they can mess up my day, but they won't destroy me. Because the person who is the king of kings has this opinion for me. This is my foundation. This is my security. And from that, I can go through the rest of the day. Amen? And here's the cool thing with that, is that one, if you're coming from that vantage point of security, then you're able to actually seek the good for, of others. That's what Mordecai and Esther did. If you're able to have that type of uh, peace and security and the sovereignty of God, of who he is, you're able to go from there. And what that enables you to do is to see Esther moments and take them. John Piper calls um, moments where all of a sudden you have this crossroads where you're going to make a decision on what to do as an Esther moment? What am I going to do in the midst of this garbagey situation, this awful scenario? How am I going to operate? Am I going to operate as if this is a reality or am I am just going to operate from a place of deficiency? Because here's the thing. When we look at our, our Esther moments, this is, this is what we get a chance to do. We get to say, if I'm living as, looking at every situation as I've got a connection with my Savior, that means that I can actually, in this moment, make a decision that's gonna glorify God and recognize for such a time as this, I was called into this situation. You're in a garbagey job. Maybe you'll have a better job next week, I don't know. But as long as you're in that garbagey job, realize that for such a time as this, you were called into that place. God has work for you to do today. You live in a garbagey community. Nowhere around here is garbagey, certainly. But let's just say you can't stand it. Maybe one day you're gonna live in an amazing place and it's gonna be wonderful and it's going to be, all your dreams come true, wonderful. But until you're there, you're here. And as long as you're here, perhaps God has called you here for such a time as this. To see that Esther moment and step in and do You're in a relationship that's complicated and difficult and taxed. And you're just like, you're ready to bail. You know what? Perhaps for such a time as this, you were called into this situation to be faithful. And stay the course. Maybe this is your Esther moment. Your current awful could be your future Esther moment. Your current awful maybe is your Esther moment right now. This past week I was talking with someone, and it's something that's been a trend I've seen as a pastor. When I'm talking with someone who's going through something just just like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Why did God let this happen to me? And I've got no answers to tell them. And the the thing is uncanny how God's sovereignty works because within like four years, five years, I've seen these people who've been in these situations like why did this happen? Why is this happening to me? For that person to all of a sudden be connected with somebody else who's going through the same thing. And all of a sudden, they're able to have an Esther moment right then and there for such a time as this. I have something you've gone through that you felt so alone going through, but you're not. That's why the church is the church you come alongside each other, and you either play the role of Esther or you play the role of Mordecai. If you're Mordecai, you're the one who's going alongside someone saying, stay the course. Follow Jesus. He has not left you. You're called into this moment for such a time as this, or you're going to be playing the role of Esther. God, I need to recognize that right now, right here, you're here and you're in this moment. I am not alone. I'm called to be faithful to you in this moment for such a time as this. When pride resurfaces, repent and come back to him and realize that he is faithful to come back in and help you realize you have another Esther moment to step into. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to also pray for our morning offering, and we have a really important announcement right after that, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you show us, you showed us um, through your sacrifice on the cross that pride has a shelf life with you. You who had the reason to be completely fixated on yourself alone gave up everything to reach us. You sacrificed everything to make a way for us to come back home. And God, we can't quantify that. We can't we can't pay that back. But Lord, I pray that you alter our heart and change our perspective to give us the fact that the, the reality that, that we are called to serve you and serve others that your story keeps on bringing us back to a right relationship with you, which which impacts the relationships we have with everyone else. Lord, for this morning's offering, I pray, Lord, that that as we generously return um, into the movement of what you've called us to do financially, that God will make an impact on this community and this world in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.